passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. You find yourself on verse 21. And while you're finding Mark 15, 21, you need to know that this is a very special day here at Crosswinds. Because for today and for the next uh, four weeks, we are going to be covering what are without doubt the most important events in world history. That is the death or the crucifixion the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything in history either looks forward to that or looks back upon that. And in the Gospel of Mark that we have been studying, everything leads up to these final amazing moments of Jesus' life. So hopefully you found Mark chapter 15, verse 21. Stand out of reverence for God's word as I read uh, verses 21 through... 32. Today we are going to be focusing only on the crucifixion of Jesus. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one in his right and one in his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. That ends the reading of the Word of God. You can be seated. Uh, This morning, uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time looking at some of the physical aspects of Christ's crucifixion, but we need to realize that Mark, as he writes about Jesus' crucifixion, doesn't spend much time going into the, the physical aspects of what happened to him in those final moments. Mark has spent most of his time talking about the mocking of Jesus, the ridicule of Jesus, the incredible amounts of insults that were given to Jesus. You remember, it started when Jesus was initially arrested and brought before the Sanhedrin, and he was brought before Caiaphas. And what did they do once he said something they didn't like? They began slapping him in the face. They began striking him in the face. They put a bag over his head and began hitting him in the face. And it continued when Jesus was brought to Pilate. 600 soldiers we saw last week were spitting on him, 
pressing a crown of thorns into his head. Hi, you're the king. Putting an old robe on him and mockingly bowing down to worship him while they then turned and struck him with what was a rod or, or a stick, most likely a piece of bamboo in the face. It's an incredible amount of mocking that Jesus experiences. Mark wants to us to understand that. And where did most of this mocking come from? We learned that last week. Most of it came from the Jews, the, the Jewish leaders in particular. Well, it's true that Pilate is the one who decided to have Jesus crucified. Last week we saw that Pilate saw Jesus as innocent. Multiple times, Pilate tried to release Jesus because he knew he was an innocent man. But uh, Pilate was vulnerable because he was deathly afraid of there being riots in the city. He had already become in trouble a number of times with Caesar for that and not handling those well. And the Jewish leaders knew that Pilate was politically vulnerable. So they stirred up the crowd. Remember, they agitated the crowd who started to riot. And they knew that if the crowd started to riot, Pilate would do anything to keep them calm and keep the peace. Including crucify an innocent man. Which is exactly what Pilate did. Even Jesus recognized that it was the Jewish leaders who were far more guilty of sin than Pilate was. John chapter 19, verse 11. Jesus said this when he was before Pilate. Those who have delivered me over to you are guilty of a greater sin. That's the Jewish leaders. So there's great mockery of Jesus. Great insult of Jesus. Great abuse of Jesus. Primarily coming from the Jewish leaders who are intent on having him killed killed in the most humiliating way. And as I was studying this week, I began wondering, you know, if I was God the Father, I would really have a hard time with these people. I would be so quick to want to haul off, you know, strike them with fire from heaven, send them all instantly to hell. These guys are terrible. No patience with them whatsoever. I mean, I know what I'm like with my kids. If anybody would dare abuse or touch my children, I'm there in an instant. This is God the Father watching his innocent, pure son being incredibly abused and killed. What does he feel like to watch that happen? What restrained him from hauling off and just ending it all? We're going to find the answer to that question uh, at the end of our study this morning. But for now, just hold that in your head and we'll get back to it. Let's begin our study with this. Jesus was crucified. Beginning in verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Remember where we left off last week. Jesus had been scourged. Uh, Ancient writers called the scourging the half-death because it was halfway dead when you were done being scourged. It was done with something called the cat of nine tails we talked about last week. It was a wooden handle which had leather straps on it, multiple straps that had metal hooks in it. And they would be uh, whipped across someone's back. The hooks would 
set themselves in someone's back, and they would tear the flesh and tear the muscle right off the bone of the victim's body when they were scorched, leaving bones there. And what was not torn off the body was shredded to nothingness. Jesus had been scourged. The flesh and the muscle torn off his back. The flesh and the muscle shredded. And then he was asked to carry his cross to the site of his crucifixion. Uh, Just so you know, most likely he didn't carry his full cross. He only carried the crossbeam. We don't know this for sure, but traditionally it was only the crossbeam. The full main beam was far too large to carry even by a healthy man over any distance. That was usually left at the site of crucifixion. But the crossbeam was not an easy thing. It weighed roughly around 100 pounds. It was not sanded wood. It was rough wood filled with splinters that would be on the back of Jesus, whose back had been torn to shreds. The route that was usually taken by the Roman executioners was not direct. Usually it was a very circuitous route that wove through the city. It was sort of a sort of mock parade the way they did this. So the maximum number of people would see a man carrying his cross on his way to his death. The reason? It greatly discouraged crime. Usually those on their way to their death, they had the placard around their neck which described what they had done which was resulting in their crucifixion. So people would see what the, what the crime was and they would see what the result was and this would cut down on um, rebellions. Now John chapter 19 verse 17 tells us that Jesus carried his own cross. At least he started that way. But somewhere along the way, whether it's because the route was so circuitous and long as they traveled through town, or it was because his back was so severely scourged and so much of the flesh and the muscle had been removed, or if Jesus was just moving just too incredibly slow because he was so amazingly weak, the Roman soldiers who were executing him were not pleased with his progress. And it was not going fast enough. So they grabbed somebody who was in the crowd around them and conscripted him and said, you, you carry Jesus' cross beam. This man's name was Simon. Simon from Cyrene. To give you some background, this Cyrene comes from, is in North Africa. It's in what is modern day Libya. It is possible that Simon of Cyrene was a black man. Uh, We don't know that for sure, but this is where that part of the world is like. And the Roman soldiers practiced something called conscription, which was something they practiced typically. And it was not just in this instance, but they practiced it all the time. If there was something to do that was heavy or hard work and they didn't want to do it, Roman soldiers had the authority to just grab somebody off the street and make them do it, which is one of the reasons the Romans were so completely hated. And that's exactly what happened to Simon. Just passing by, grabbed and forced to carry Jesus' cross. The text says that Simon was coming in from the country. We don't know if he was out working in the morning or if he was coming in for the Passover. Most likely he was coming in for the Passover. 
This was a complete and unexpected change of Simon's plans. Not what he hoped to do that morning. It was painful. It was an inconvenience. But here's what I want you to see. This was an act of God's grace in his life. Because Simon didn't just meet Jesus for the first time that day as he carried his cross. But what we know is that Simon eventually became a Christian and he trusted in Jesus. It's not just Simon trusted in Jesus, but he had two sons. We saw their names, Rufus and Alexander. And apparently they trusted in Jesus as well. Mark, very interestingly, sees it important to identify Simon to us as he's telling this and to identify Rufus and Alexander to us as he's telling us the story about Christ's crucifixion. They seem to drop in out of no place and just immediately leave. Why does he do that? Here's what I'd like to tell you. When you we know that the Gospel of Mark was written to the church in Rome. When you go to the book of Romans, at the very end of the book, is Paul is writing greetings to the people who are leaders in the church of Rome. Who do we find there? I'll read it for you. Romans 16, verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. It seems that this is Simon's son who has become a leader in the church at Rome. That day when Simon had the massive inconvenience of being conscripted by a Roman soldier to carry Jesus' cross, was it painful? Yes. Was it inconvenient and humiliating? Totally. But it was God's grace in his life. It's how he met Jesus, eventually came to trust in Jesus, shared the gospel with his sons, Rufus and Alexander, who then eventually became one of the leaders in the church of Rome. Could you imagine that, being in church with Rufus? Yeah, his dad! His dad was one of the guys that helped, it, helped Jesus carry the wood of his cross to his crucifixion. And I'd like to make this point. Isn't it true that God likes to progress his gospel, grow his kingdom by sudden and unexpected changes in our life. Inconvenient changes to our plans. That when we look back upon them, we say, now I know why God did that. And I want to ask you, maybe you grew up in a Christian home, but many of us didn't. For those of you who came to Christ later in life, what were the strange set of circumstances that happened that introduced you to him? What were the inconveniences that were in your schedule that God used to upset your world, which was ultimately an act of grace, so you should come and know him? Just a thought for that. Oftentimes, when God changes our schedule and upsets our world, it's not because he hates us. It's because he's actually going to do an act of grace for us. We won't see it until later after it's done. Just like it happened to Simon with his children. It continues. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Golgotha is literally Aramaic 
It means place of the skull. It's just brought over directly into English here in our translation. Sometimes you'll hear about the term Calvary. Calvary is Latin for a place of the skull. So uh, Golgotha and Calvary are one and the same. Calvary was originally used in the 4th century in the Latin Vulgate, which is a Latin translation of the scriptures, and that's how that became introduced into our English language. Now, the word or Golgotha or Calvary, we often picture this as a hill that Jesus was forced to climb and where he was crucified on. Technically, in the text, there is nothing that tells us that this was a hill. It may have been, but it not necessarily didn't have to be. What we know historically is that the Romans loved to crucify people along busy roads or on important intersections. That way, the maximum number of people would see those being crucified as they were in the process of dying. Today, it would be the rough equivalent of crucifying people outside of a Walmart. Why is it called a place of the skull? There's a variety of thoughts on this. Some people think that it uh, was because it was a rock that looked like a skull. Uh, that is unlikely. Others believe because there had been so many people crucified there that there were literally human bones and human skulls that remained on the location. That's possible, but the Jews most likely would not have tolerated that. Probably it was simply because that was the Romans' favorite site of execution in Jerusalem. That's where they chose to have those who were crucified die. Quintilian, who is a, an ancient writer uh, on Roman rhetoric, he tells us this about the Romans' practice of crucifixion. They say, he says, Whenever we crucify the guilty, the most crowded roads are chosen where the most people can see and be moved by this fear. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. So we don't know if Golgotha or Calvary was a hill, but what we do know is that everybody saw Jesus die. It was in a busy intersection or place. The text continues. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. This is a very interesting verse. Many of the scholars who write about this talk about the fact that this was actually an act of compassion for Jesus. That you'd be giving Jesus an alcoholic beverage to possibly deaden the pain of the crucifixion before he died on the cross. While that is the popular explanation for this verse, and that Jesus, by the way, refused it because he wanted to fully embrace the pain of the cross, well, that's the popular explanation for this verse. I'm going to tell you that that's not the one that I believe is true. There's a minority opinion that I think is actually the right opinion. I will share it with you this morning and walk you through the reasons for my conclusions. Understand, this is not regular wine. Mark is clear. This is wine mixed with myrrh. Myrrh is often used as an aromatic resin. Myrrh, if you look it up in Aramaic, which you see is oftentimes the language that is being spoken at this point, means bitterness. This is wine that has been mixed with something to make it extremely bitter, sour, and rotten. 
I don't think this is an act of kindness upon Jesus. Remember I told you that everything that Mark is trying to highlight is how Jesus is mocked, how Jesus is insulted? This is part of the mocking and insulting of Jesus. Bitter wine. You go to Matthew, the parallel passage, he says this, They offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but he tasted it and would not drink it. Gall could be a variety of things, but once again, if you translate it down to its most basic root, gall simply means bitter. Wine mixed with something that makes it rotten, that makes it bitter. You go to Luke. What does Luke say about this? The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. So what Jesus has offered is sour wine, rotten wine, bitter wine. It has been mixed with something that makes it putrid. Put yourself in Jesus' situation. The night before, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was sweating profusely with the stress of just what was going to come. Bleeding, literally, blood. He's been scourged. He's had a massive blood loss. He is completely dehydrated. He is just parched on his lips. The soldiers, everything they've been doing is mocking him and insulting him in every way possible. Would you like a drink? We have some wine for you. What would most people do at that point? Guzzle it down only to find it was rotten, it was bitter. So the agony on the cross wouldn't just be the agony of dying on the cross, but the nauseousness of having drunk something putrid. Jesus did not drink that wine, but that's, that's my thought on what was actually going on here, and I think I have some pretty decent logic as you study the other text to find out what's going on. By the way, this idea of him being offered rotten wine, we find that this was all prophesied beforehand. All of these things that are happening to Jesus are not happening by mistake. They're actually happening exactly the way God the Father said they would. Psalm 69 verse 21 says this, Hundreds of years before, they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Next, Mark moves on to the crucifixion itself. He says this, And they crucified him, and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. Mark simply says, they crucified him. He doesn't go into many of the details of that. And the reason he doesn't is because crucifixions were extremely common in that time. Estimates by some scholars say that um, in that place in the world, at that time of history, roughly 32,000 people were crucified. Crucifixions were as common as funeral processions are today. Something you saw all the time. So Mark didn't see the need to elucidate on what Jesus went through. But thankfully because we are so far removed from Jesus' crucifixion and from that time in world history. Uh, 
well, thankfully we're removed from those things, but unfortunately what that has done is it has made us lose sight of those things and the barbaric nature of crucifixion itself. We know that because today we wear crosses as jewelry. Women wear them in their ears or they wear them around their neck and it's fashionable to wear a cross. In the ancient world, you would have never done that. That would have been hideous. That would have been barbaric. It would be like wearing an electric chair around your neck or like wearing a guillotine hanging off your ear. It would have been sick and, and morbid. But today, it's now fashionable. Let me take a few minutes to tell you about crucifixion. And I don't want to get into all the details of it because I know that would be sort of inappropriate to describe what people went through. I mean, yesterday was Halloween, but we're not going to scare you. Uh, I will mention to you that if you want to look that up, you can go to the Journal of the American Medical Association. They have a, a March 21st, 1986 issue, you may want to look up, that goes into all the medical aspects of crucifixion. We're not going to get into that today, but I do want to tell you a little bit about what was involved with that. The Romans crucified people on three different kinds of crosses. One was sort of an uppercase T. Where the other was more of a lowercase T. The lowercase T, by the way, was the kind that Jesus was crucified on. We know that because it says they hung a placard above his head, and you couldn't do that on an uppercase T-style cross. The other cross they used was an X. Sometimes, if you read about it, it's called a St. Andrew's cross is the way they died. What they would do is they would drive nails into uh, your arms. Some people would like to point out that the nails were driven into the hands. Historically, that was not done uh, because the hands could actually tear the flesh would tear and people could fall off the cross. So usually their nails were driven through the wrists. That way people couldn't get off. What would happen after that is they would take, the nail, take your feet and they would usually cross them one on top of the other and they would drive a spike through them into the cross. How big were these nails? The nails were customarily one half inch wide in the area of five to seven inches long. And what happened from there was complete agony. You know what it's like when you have a splinter in your foot? You know how much pain it is to have a splinter deep in your foot? Imagine having a nail in your foot that is now being used to support all of your body weight. By pushing up on that nail is complete agony. But if you choose to hang on your arms, that would close your chest cavity so you couldn't breathe. So there was a constant oscillation between the agony of pushing up on your feet and not being able to breathe when you hung on the cross. So the person went up and down with their back on rough wood. And what had they done to the back prior to the cross? Remember the cat of nine tails? The scourging? The back that was now one huge open wound was going back and forth on rough, splintered wood. Death on the cross took anywhere from one day to up to a week for people to pass away. While this was not done to Jesus, uh, we do have historical evidence that what they would do to try to lengthen the death process is sometimes they would actually take and they would strap ropes around the arms and tie them to the crossbeam. 
and that would give more support so the person could last longer. But the reason they did that was also quite morbid because it would cut off the blood flow to the arms, which then would eventually die, which then would eventually start to introduce gangrene into the body. You must remember that crucifixion was designed by the Romans to be the most hideous, most horridly painful way that they could ever conceive of for someone to lose their life. No Roman citizen was allowed to be crucified except by direct order from Caesar himself. Josephus, who's an ancient historian, says that crucifixion is the most miserable possible form of death. Cicero, you've heard of him? This is what he says about it. The very word cross should be far removed not only from the person of a Roman citizen, but from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. The mere mention of them, that is unworthy of a Roman citizen and a free man. The Greeks even invented a new word to describe the level of pain that was only achievable by death on the cross. It was called ex crucis pain, literally mean pain of the cross. And I've told you before over the years, that's come over into English called excruciating pain. It's mind-blowing to me to know that God the Father has ordained and chosen beforehand that this is the method of death that his son would endure as he dies for your sins and for mine. Jesus knew full well what he was uh, about to endure, what he was about to embrace. The reason that Jesus chose to die this form of death hear this well, is because he loves you and me. He was dying for you and me. In our place, experiencing what we deserve. Let me give you a, a little bit of history of crucifixion. I'll go through this very briefly, but you'll see why I do this in, in just a moment. Crucifixion, this is important to know, was not invented until around the year 519 B.C. Uh, Darius the Mede, he initially used it on about 3,000 of the Babylonians that he conquered. It was a very primitive form of crucifixion. But crucifixion began to become popular after that until the Romans actually perfected it as the most gruesome form of death. Eventually, the Romans even outlawed it for anybody by the year 300 A.D., Here's what's interesting. While crucifixion wasn't invented as a form of death until 519 B.C., when we look at the Old Testament and the prophecies about Jesus and how Jesus would suffer, we find these prophecies talking about Jesus dying by crucifixion even before crucifixion has been invented. For instance, let's look at David who writes about Jesus' death in 1000 B.C., 500 years before crucifixion is invented. Psalm 22, For the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. 
I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me, and they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That's Jesus. Let's look at what Isaiah said about crucifixion 700 B.C., 200 years before it's invented. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Look at Zechariah. Go 100 years later. It was now 100 years before crucifixion's invented in 600 B.C. So that... When they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep and weep, weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. When you get to the book of Philippians in the New Testament, Paul tells us this about Jesus and his death. In being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By saying that, Paul is saying, do you understand the incredible depth of love that God the Father has for you? The incredible amount of love that Jesus the Son has for you? He didn't choose to just die any death. He chose to die the most horrid form of death that had ever been conceived of by man. Death on the cross. And if you think that is bad, what's even worse is when the father turned his back on the son while he hung on the cross. What's even worse is when God the father poured all of his justified wrath that you and I deserve to receive on his own son while he hung on the cross in the agony of that death. Jesus could have got off that cross anytime he wanted. He didn't. He stayed there. It was the only way to save you and me. And he did it because he loves you and me. Now that's crucifixion. It says also at this point that uh, they divided Jesus' clothing. John gives us a little bit more details on what happened at that point. Let me read for you what John says. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. That was Psalm 22, verse 18, which is talking about how Jesus would die. By the way, how many soldiers were in his execution detail? Did you see that? Four. That'll become important. The text continues. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. The third hour is 9 o'clock in the morning. Think about how fast everything took place. It was from midnight to around 1 a.m. that Jesus had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. The disciples slept, but he prayed. Then from the arrest 
From 1 a.m. to 3 a.m., there was the trial of Jesus before Annas. Then the trial of Jesus before Caiaphas. And then Jesus' beating. Then at 5 o'clock in the morning, there was another trial before the Jews. It was the mock trial to say it actually took place in daylight hours to make sure it's actually legal. And then they brought him to Pilate. Pilate wanted to set him free. Send him over to Herod. Another trial in front of Herod. Herod wanted to set him free. Send him back to Pilate. After that, there was the beating by the soldiers. There was the scourging that took place of Jesus. All this before 9 o'clock in the morning. It was 9 o'clock in the morning when Jesus went on the cross. Why the rush? Well, I personally think in a practical way, they wanted to make sure the least amount of people were up so nobody could rebel and fight against them. But also in a divine sense, he needed to be on the cross by 9 a.m., because he needs to die by 3 p.m. at the same time that the Passover lambs died. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. Remember, they usually put that placard uh, around someone's neck that was the crime for which they were going to be killed for. There was no crime that Pilate, Herod, or anyone had found for Jesus. So they went with the crime that the Sanhedrin charged Jesus with, which was being the king of the Jews. Incidentally, uh, if you look at the other Gospels, you find that it was not just the king of the Jews. There's actually more that was put on it. Mark gave us the shortened version. The full word said, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. The Jews wanted to uh, have that changed, but Pilate refused. And with him, it says, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Who were these robbers? Remember, we studied them last week. They were most likely Barabbas's accomplices in crime, fellow insurrectionists, fellow people that were guilty of murder. But Barabbas was set free, and Jesus, we saw last week, died in Barabbas's place. And one soldier hung on either, either side of Jesus. Incidentally, this was also prophetically spoken about in the Old Testament. Everything is happening just the way God had planned. Isaiah 53, verse 12 says, Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We've seen the crucifixion of Jesus. Now as we get to the end of the crucifixion, Mark focuses back in on his favorite topic for Jesus' death, which is the incredible mocking of Jesus. We see, number one, that Jesus was mocked by the public. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. This is heartless. Aren't these the same people that Jesus has healed their sick, raised their children from the dead, fed them with food out of thin air? Yet they mock him. The interesting part is they say, you who said who would destroy the temple in three days, come down off the cross and prove it. Jesus was destroying the temple, wasn't he? Think of the irony here. 
by staying on the cross, he was making obsolete the entire temple and sacrificial system as he died as the one pure spotless lamb who actually took away sin. They wanted Jesus to come off the cross, but by staying on the cross, he stayed on the cross not he came he stayed on the cross not so he could save himself, but he could save them. The irony continues when you go to the point you look at the mocking by the priests. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Here's the irony. They're saying he couldn't save himself. Jesus could save himself, but he was staying on the cross so he could save the very people who were mocking him. Jesus was also mocked by the criminals next to him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The picture is, as Jesus dies on the cross, the entire world has turned against Jesus. Everyone is mocking and insulting Jesus. I said earlier at the beginning of the message, why? Why does Jesus stay on the cross? Why did God the Father not just bring out his wrath on those Jewish leaders and annihilate them once and for all? Incredible amount of mocking. An incredible amount of insulting. Here's the answer. The reason that God the Father didn't bring out his wrath and the reason that God the Son stayed on the cross even while he was mocked and insulted beyond belief is because he loved the very people who are mocking and insulting him. He stayed on the cross to save the very people who are mocking and insulting him. I don't know how you have mocked Jesus. I don't know how you have rebelled against Jesus. I don't know how you have insulted and turned your back on Jesus. But I want you to know that Jesus is not turning his back on you. He stayed on that cross because he loves you, he wanted to die for you, and to save you. That, my friends, is the great Savior we have. Uh, I have some points here I wanted to cover at the very end. I'm just going to cover, in the way of application, uh, the second and third one quickly. No matter how hard I've mocked Jesus and rebelled against him, he loves me, he died for me, and he offers to save me. Well, Mark tells us that those two thieves on the cross mocked Jesus. Luke tells us that one of those thieves had a change of heart. It went like this. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. And the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deed. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Both of those thieves started the day mocking Jesus. One of those thieves ended the day turning to and trusting Jesus. And he was saved and went to heaven, while the other went to hell. I don't know who you are when you've come in here. Maybe you've been mocking Jesus. I want you to know it's a very simple thing. Turn from mocking him, begin trusting him, and you indeed will be saved. It's that simple. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of the crucifixion. Thank you, Jesus, for going through such incredible amounts of pain out of love for us to save us. We are just completely humbled. And I ask you, Jesus, that um, as we turn to communion, as we turn to reflect on your body and your blood that was shed for us, that we would worship you from the bottom of our hearts with gratitude and gratefulness for all that you have done. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.